once, once again, good morning and greetings. We want to welcome the house of God to this meeting place again. <clears throat> Appreciated your message this morning, Noah. I uh, must say that I was, I was fed by your talk on thirst. So... <laughs> A couple months ago, we expressed a desire, we felt impressed upon us to um, lift up the law of God as a good thing, and to somewhat try to use the uh, Ten Commandments as a little bit of an outline over the next while to, to cover certain things in the law of God in an effort to learn what is right and what is wrong. In our first message, we sought to establish that the law of the Lord is good. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Without it, we are clueless. We don't have any idea what God's expectations are. Romans makes that very clear in multiple places. The second message, we borrowed the phrase from the very beginning of the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, I am the Lord. And we talked about who God is with the understanding that if we do not know who God is, His laws will make no sense to us. We covered three things primarily, according to Matthew 16, that He is the living God. We covered that He is a righteous God with eyes that are so pure, according to Habakkuk 1.13, that He cannot even look on evil. And we went to Numbers 14 to show that He is a just God. He cannot just pass by iniquity. He doesn't justify the wicked. He doesn't just forgive sin. There's a price for sin, and it needs to be paid. As we will seek to discover today, he is also a jealous God. I think I'm going to read, first of all, once again, I'm going to be skipping to a lot of different references. If you want to write these down, you can. Review them in your own personal studies at home. My first verse I'm going to go to is Exodus 34, 14. It says, Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Isaiah 42, verse 8, gives us an idea of what jealousy is. You may think, children, well, what is jealous? What does it mean? that God is a jealous God. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Basically, the idea that God is a jealous God is just basically saying, God will share the throne with no one. He will share His Worship with no one. <clears throat> I 
think we'll turn to Exodus chapter 20. You can turn there, and I'm just going to read the first seven verses to get us on track here with where we're at. Exodus 20, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord, thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now we're going to stop there, and I'm just going to back up, and I'm just going to quickly go over verses 3, 4, and 5 before we get on into actually what the message is about this morning. Just to try and get a handle on on what these, primarily the second and third commandments are here. I guess first, second, and third. The first one there in verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we just covered that. God shares the throne with no one. He doesn't split his praise with someone else or something else. Some have given the idea that the phrase before me means in my face. Um, Just kind of a, a, a blasphemous thing that just really... Drives him crazy. You're just, you know. (laughs) Talks about Nimrod in Genesis 10 uh, being a mighty hunter. Many understand that to be of the hearts of men. He was a a very blasphemous man, a very proud man, a very idolatrous man, but people liked him. And he had a big following. And they deified him on his death, uh, after his death, I mean. And he was just, it was just in the face of God. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord in the face. It's not totally consistent through the scriptures, but it is an interesting thought there. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So, with this verse, some people have said, you know, we can't give our little girls dollies, because that's a likeness of something on earth. We can't take pictures, because that's a likeness, which that used to be more real because like in the mid to late 1800s, uh, when like photography, photography first came out, they were called likenesses. <laughs> Come over here and let's get a family likeness, you know. <laughs> so obviously that kind of raised some red flags in people's mind. Is that what it's saying? I'm going to submit the idea that that's not what it's saying. Now I have friends that believe that, and I do not make fun of that position. But based on the rest of Scripture where, just a couple examples I thought of in Exodus 25, 1 and 18, where it talks about God is giving instructions for making 
the Ark of the Covenant. He's talking about making the mercy seat. And they were to make some cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. That's kind of a likeness of something that's in heaven. And that was commanded by God. Another place was Numbers 21, verse 8, where Moses was commanded by the Lord to make a snake out of brass and hang it on a pole. That's kind of a likeness of something on earth. <laughs> but it was commanded of God. Is God contradicting himself? Is he saying, don't do this? And then commanding over here to do exactly what he said not to do? No. I think if we understand what he's saying here, it is in the context of worship. It's the context of worship. fact is, we find in 2 Kings 18.4, I'm just going to read that because I don't think I can quote it. Speaking of the brazen serpent, 2 Kings 18.4, when uh, I believe this was Hezekiah became king of Judah, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He removed the high places, he broke the images, and cut down the groves. And he broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense unto it. Here was something that God had commanded to be made, but when it began to be worshipped, it was destroyed. So I believe this commandment is best understood in the Context of worship, which verse 5 does make clear, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. There's been some confusion on this verse. What does it mean to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation? And uh, I'm going to say that this is not some mysterious generational sin. This is not, uh, you know, you have to reconcile this obviously with Ezekiel 18 verse 19. Really the whole chapter 18 of Ezekiel there. But verse 19 specifically says, The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. How do you reconcile the two? I'd like to read uh, Numbers 14, actually quotes the same thing. Verse 18, where it just says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. I like the way the uh, Holman Christian Standard translates that. It says, Bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children under the third and fourth generation. This is just a realization that oftentimes, and this is very sobering to me, when I'm making decisions right. in my life, that oftentimes the consequence of poor choice meets its full impact in the next generation. I think of an example of that as David and Solomon. David made some poor choices, but he loved the Lord. And his heart was always brought back to the Lord. I think of one that has always confused me in the life of David is God had been very clear in the law when he had told his people, when you come into the land that I shall give you and you put a king over you, he shall not multiply unto himself wives. Right. What was David thinking? <laughs> uh, there's another place in Scripture that gives the idea that multiplying to yourself wives could turn your heart away from God. Right. And somehow... 
even in, in David's uh, blindness or ignorance or whatever it was, I, I really don't understand it. <laughs> but somehow his heart was never turned away from God. But Solomon, his son, who was just following his father's footsteps, did the same thing his father did, and his heart was turned away. Solomon was not handicapped. Solomon could have chose a different path, you know. But it was kind of a, kind of a little bit of a setup. <laughs> and we're not even going to mention Jeroboam and Rehoboam. I mean, obviously. <clears throat> but oftentimes the consequence of poor choice meets its full impact in the next generation. This is not a passing on of sin, but this is a recognition of consequence. Verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? This is an interesting verse because there are three different understandings that I'm aware of, maybe there are more, of exactly what taking the name of the Lord in vain is. Um, the most common one, obviously, is, is using God or his name as a byword, or as a cheap exclamation, uh, you know, or using anything related to God, whether it's his, his name, or his judgment, or his holiness, you know. <clears throat> so it, it, it can mean that, and I obviously think that is definitely included in it. Uh, the second understanding of taking the name of the Lord in vain, which is talked about by some uh, Jewish rabbis actually is making a, a it, it's taking the word take and it's it's making a couple different you you can take you like that you take take the word take a couple different ways uh, the one the one way to take take <laughs> is to give yourself to something or to take take it on you know like a woman. When she gets married to a man and she commits herself to him, she takes on his name. She lays down her old name. She takes on his name. You know, Miss Vanessa Clausen became Mister. I'm sorry, Mrs. Yeah, she didn't. That was, that was bad. Became Mrs. Sheldon Gish. She took on my name. It's likened to a sometimes a Hebrew student takes on takes the yoke of his rabbi. <clears throat> it's basically just saying, if you say you're a Christian, act like one. Because when you take on the name of Christian, when you claim that, when you claim to be a follower of Christ, you're automatically representing all the other Christians in the world to everyone looking on. And you can be either a bad rep representation or a good one. If you're a bad representation of what you claim to be, you took on the name in vain. Does that make sense? Right. It's like saying, I make you Lord of my life, but you continue to live like he's not. Now when we take this verse in its appropriate context of worship, which it is, it's interesting, it's sandwiched right here between two things relating to worship. Um, that of keeping a holy day and that of refraining from idolatry, 
places it in the context of worship. And this gives us a third possibility of what that means. And that is simply attaching or mixing God's name or worship with the corruption and vanity of idols or images. And we're going to look at that a little bit today. I'm a little scattered here this morning, I'm sorry. (laughs) I want to lift up, I called that song, Worship the Lord and the Beauty of Holiness, because that was kind of the inspiration for the message this morning. We want to talk about worship. That's what we want to talk about, because that's what this is dealing with. It's talking with worship. As we look at the second and third commandments, um, really... The whole first tablet. You know, God gave these commandments on two tablets to Moses. And the latter one deals primarily with our relationship to man. And the former one deals primarily with our relationship to God. With our worship, right? The first commandment deals with the who of worship. The second, third, and fourth deals with the how of worship. Both are important. It is on this subject of worship that God's particular hate of mixture comes into full view. As a title for the message today, I'd like the title to be Unholy Worship. Unholy Worship. That's taken from, obviously, the inspiration of worshiping the Lord and the beauty of holiness. What is unholy worship? The Bible says that they that worship the Lord must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's John 4.24. In fact, I believe it says the true worshipers worship Him in spirit and truth. That kind of indicates there is such a thing as false worshipers, right? People who think they're worshiping the Lord, but their worship is not acceptable or true. We live in a generation that is fairly forward about the idea that it doesn't matter how you worship as long as the who you worship is right. This, in a certain sense, deals with worshiping Him in spirit, but it completely leaves worshiping Him in truth out of the equation. The true worshipers worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I think we know it is possible to worship Him in, tr- worship in truth without the Spirit. <laughs> you know, I mean, there could be a form of doing what's right and lacking the Spirit. We don't want to be caught in either trap. And what is the truth? Both John 17, 17 and Psalms 119, 142 makes it clear that the Word of God, that the law of God is truth. <clears throat> This brings us right back to the law. I state again, the Bible says there's actually three different references to this. 1 Chronicles 16.29, Psalms 29.2, and Psalms 96.9 all say to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But what is holiness? How do we worship in such a mode? 
how can we worship in holiness if we aren't even really sure what it is? So what is holiness? <clears throat> I remember uh, years ago, um, Dean Taylor preaching a Bible school, and he just said holiness is separated. You know, we talk about separation from the world. That's holiness. Now, holiness goes one step further because separation from the world calls us from something. Holiness to the Lord calls us to something. <laughs> you can be separated from the world and not be holy to the Lord. But you can't be holy to the Lord without being separate from the world. Right. So here's some words that we use that help define holiness. Set apart, sanctified, separated, pure, unmixed. These are all words that help define holiness. So what is unholy worship? How do we worship you know, outside of the beauty of holiness? Can we even worship God that way? I'd like to give just a few references here and I'm going to read I'm going to take the time to read them the first one is in Malachi chapter 1 and I'm going to read verses 7 14 and 11 <clears throat> Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar and ye say wherein have we polluted thee and that ye say the table of the Lord is contemptible so here we have an offering of polluted bread. Verse 14 says, But cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. So we have a polluted altar, and we have a corrupt sacrifice. And that is as opposed to verse 11, where it talks about for from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great amongst the Gentiles. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. A polluted altar, a corrupt sacrifice, stands in contrast to a pure offering. A polluted altar and a corrupt sacrifice is, is unholy worship. I'd like to read a few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's an interesting thing we can learn about the heart of God here that is often overlooked. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods, upon the high mountains, and upon the hills, and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars, ye shall break their pillars, ye shall burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. And verse 4, ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. What does it mean to not do so unto the Lord your God? Let me read it in the New King James. It says, You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. 
you don't sanctify or reform a pagan altar. You destroy it. The reformation of a pagan altar is unholy worship. God wants it destroyed. Revelations 3, verse 15, was a verse I thought of in thinking about mixture and unholy worship. It says, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou wert hot or cold. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. So obviously this is something that was kind of irritating to God. He was going to spew them out of his mouth. But what is lukewarm? Lukewarm is nothing but a mixture of hot and cold. And it's repulsive to God. 2 Corinthians 6. Verses 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? God wants to keep this holy. His worship is different than their worship. And when we mix the two, it becomes unholy worship. I was thinking of a few examples that we could use in the scriptures of unholy worship. 2 Chronicles 33.17 was one of them. And this is talking about Manasseh. <clears throat> when, he re- when he was king, he took away the strange god and the idols out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 16, he repaired the altar of the Lord and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Verse 17, nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, but unto the Lord their God only. They had sanctified a pagan altar. They kept the altar that had been for idolatry, but they did it only to the Lord. This is also, I think, what, uh, was it Jehoshaphat, I think, did a similar thing. And I've always, I've always wondered when I read that, nevertheless, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, nevertheless. Are there neverthelesses in my life? Is there some area that I just haven't gone all the way? Just retain a little bit of a mixture. God forbid that there would be neverthelesses in our life. Thought of 1 Chronicles 13 7. And this is talking about bringing up the ark of the Lord. And verse 7 says, And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the, drave the cart. 
where did they get the idea to haul the ark of God on an ox cart? They got it from the Philistines. They got it from the enemies of God. God had given them clear instructions how that ark was to be transported in Numbers 4, 15. But they had done a mixture. They took the things of God and they mixed it with the methods of his enemies. And God wasn't happy with that. Uzzah died that day. Think of Leviticus 10. I'm going to go ahead and read that too. Here we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. I think I'm going to read the first three verses. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them in his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the house of the Lord which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I'll stop there. What was the strange fire in the house of God? It says right here, it was fire that he, the Lord, had commanded them not. The ESV, I think, translates that word as good as any, where it says unauthorized fire. They offered an unauthorized, they brought a sacrifice before the Lord that God had not commanded them. They were mixing, whether, it's, whether, it's, whether it was their idea or the idea of the enemies of God, the result was the same. Man's idea or Satan's idea has the same thing. If God didn't authorize it, it's a strange fire. I think he hammered that home then. Later on in Leviticus 16, verse 2, And the Lord said unto Moses, this was, and it says, After the death of the two sons of Aaron, it says, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not. And basically, it was just, just reaffirming, You worship me the way I told you to worship me, when I told you to worship me. You don't just come in with your own ideas or with a mixture of pagan ideas or whatever. That's unholy worship. Hosea chapter 7. Verse 8. Ephraim. He hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Every time I read that, I have to think of uh, several years ago at Bible school, Brother Aaron Hurst preached a message, preached a message entitled Ephraim, a cake not turned. I love that message. I actually still have it. I listened to it just a while back again. You're burnt and hard on one side, and you're soft and dewy on the other. You have one foot in the world, and you have one foot in the church. It's a mixture. That's what he said. <clears throat> and it says, he hath mixed himself amongst the people. It's unholy worship. So you might be wondering, what does all this have to do with idolatry? What does this have to do with what we were reading there in the, 
primarily the second and third commandments there of the Decalogue. When we think of idolatry, we often think of the worship of a false god. But idolatry actually has a twofold meaning. It is both the worship of false gods or it is the false worship of God. Throughout the Bible, both the worship of false gods and the false worship of God is punished as disobedience. The worship of a false god or of false gods can be kind of obvious, right? The false worship of God can be much more subtle and deceptive because you can be somewhat unaware of your transgression because you're consoled by the fact that you are, in fact, worshiping God, the true God. And oftentimes when confronted with the truth about what you're actually doing, the response is quick. Well, but that's not what it means to me. You ever heard that? <laughs> of course you have. Well, that's not what it means to me. Which I find it ironic that we have that defense sometimes amongst Christians. Because we live in a generation that is fairly free. I'm talking about the generation outside of Christianity now. That is fairly free about the idea that truth is relative. There is no truth. It's just my truth against your truth. I mean, we can be in two different dimensions of reality, right? Just because that's true to you doesn't make it true to me. And we say that is not true. <laughs> but the response of what something means to me is deeply rooted in the idea that truth is relative. Because what something means becomes irrelevant in light of what it means to me. <clears throat> the meaning of something does not determine whether it's right or wrong. But the meaning of what it means to me determines whether it's right or wrong. Its meaning to you has nothing to do with whether it's true. God has given us the law to tell us what things mean to him. And isn't that, is that not all that we should care about? I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, because I'm sorry, Exodus 32, because we're going to review an account here that is probably one of the clearest examples in the Bible that I can think of, of unholy worship. All right, so we lost this here. Let's... Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. I'll just read them. Exodus 32, 1 through 6. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, 
and bring them unto me. And all the people brake off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. A surface reading of this account gives the idea that the children of Israel, upon the delay of Moses, were very quick to forsake their God in favor of another God. But a deeper look at this account reveals something much more subtle going on here. And I believe if we understand it, it sets a new challenge before us that can be applied even in our day. So what was going on here? And shall we just say what at least is a possibility of what was going on here? I would say a strong possibility. The first clue as to what their motives were or may have been is found in verse 1 where they said to Aaron, Up, make us gods. What does make us gods mean? The word for gods is Elohim. They said to Aaron, Up and make us Elohim. Elohim is one of the titles of God. It means the supreme one. Or the supreme ones. I am, on the end of any Hebrew word, pluralizes it just like S does on the end of an English word. Um, So that's why they could translate it gods. But that's how Hebrew is. It pluralizes not only for quantity, but for quality. God is big. He's big, big. So you pluralize him because he's big. (laughs) It's just saying God is big. That's how the, in the the original language, that's, that's how it deals with God. It talks about the Lord our gods is one. Remember now thy creators in the day of thy youth, days of thy youth. It's not saying there's more than one God. It's not saying there's more than one creator. It's just saying he's big. (laughs) Make us Elohim to go before us. This is reestablished in verse 4. After Aaron had made the golden calf and fashioned it with his graving tool, he said, or they said, this is Elohim. And that's what... uh, The King James says, these be thy gods. Uh, The New King James actually says, this is your God, O Israel. This is Elohim that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now in my mind, what compounds the fact is in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now you probably know this, but I'll just point this out, that wherever Lord, as it is here, and as it is through most of the Old Testament, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, 
is where they put Lord in place of yod Hey vav Hey, which is his name. Tomorrow is a feast unto Yahweh. That's his name. You can say, well, uh, what's with the calf? What about the calf, you know? Well, why did they choose a calf? And uh, if I understand correctly, it was not uncommon, you know, before there were letters like we use, you know, they wrote in pictograph forms. You know, you had pictures to represent different things, and it was not uncommon for God to be represented with an ox or an ox head because an ox represented, it, it was actually not the representation of God as much as it was the representation and the picture of strength and might. Now you can imagine how moved the children of Israel were by the might and the strength of their God. He had just recently delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. He had just parted the Red Sea. Not to mention he had smashed Pharaoh's gods. <laughs> he was a powerful God. I believe had you been here and questioned them as to why they were committing idolatry, I am convinced that they would have told you that you don't understand, that that is not their intention, and that that is not what that calf means to them. It was only meant to represent the true God. This, is account, this here is an account, I believe, not of the worship of a false god, but of the false worship of God. It was a mixture. You know, I really don't care what that calf meant to the children of Israel. I don't care what their intentions were. It's completely insignificant. We do know what it meant to God. And that should be all we care about. Deuteronomy 9, verse 12, when it visits this account again, says when God told Moses what was going on, he had said, they have turned aside, not unto other gods, but they have turned aside from the way which I commanded them. I think that's significant. This is consistent with some of the other Bible examples that we mentioned earlier. You know, I don't know what Aaron's sons were thinking when they offered a sacrifice to God that he had not commanded them to offer. But I do know what God was thinking. I don't know what David was thinking when he transported the ark of God on an ox cart. But I do know what God thought. I don't know what Saul was thinking. It's completely unclear what Saul was thinking when he saved the best of the spoil to sacrifice to the Lord at Gilgal in 1 Samuel 15, 21. We do know what God thought of it. And that's why he said in verse 22 of the same chapter, to obey is better than sacrifice. I have to wonder how many applications this can, we can make of this to our own day. Are there any areas in our life where we have accepted a pollution, a mixture, a corruption, making our worship unholy worship? <clears throat> 
Are there things that the church has adopted as acceptable and that we base solely on what it means to me? One of the uh, most classic examples of something that immediately seems to be a all the time battle in our generation anyway is music. You know? <clears throat> music that was in, invented by Lucifer himself who had been the musician of heaven but corrupted his gifts and gave them to his worshipers in heathen lands who then brought them here, that music that is employed in the worship of demons. And yet we think we can change a few lyrics and use it in our worship of God. It's unholy worship. If I can be that bold, I'm sorry if you don't like that, but it's a pagan altar. And that music is not to be reformed. It's to be destroyed. As far as in the lives of, in our lives, in our worship of God. Oh, but it edifies me, people say. I, and I remember I remember a friend of mine years ago telling me, trying to convince me that his music edified him. <clears throat> but with all his edifying music, he somehow could not get victory in his life over the most basic of morality. <laughs> and he would tell me, I remember him telling me, Oh, my music has nothing to do with what I'm struggling with. <laughs> and he could not see that he was doing exactly what that music was designed to make him do. It's a pagan altar. It does not bring good fruit. It does not honor God. You can say, well, I, but I know people that got saved under, you know, a contemporary Christian concert, you know. Well, Absolutely. God can use whatever he wants to. I mean, there was one time that he had a message for someone and he used a donkey to talk to him. I haven't seen anybody going around to donkeys lately trying to get a word from the Lord. <laughs> Not exactly something you, you know, make a custom of. <laughs> I have to think of certain traditions that have even filtered into the Christian church um, that are not only pagan in origin, but idolatrous in nature. You know, we think of egg-laying rabbits, and witches, hobgoblins, and spirits, and uh, you know, things like that. They're not just pagan in origin. They're idolatrous in nature. They can be traced right there. You don't have to dig very deep to realize that is a pagan altar. You can't reform those things. You can't sanctify them. They're to be destroyed. You can't employ them in your worship, the holy worship of God. You know, people say that a Christmas tree in Jeremiah 10, verses 3 and 4, is, is not talking about a Christmas tree. It's talking about idolatry. Well, that's kind of the point. It is idolatrous. That's exactly where it comes from. It is not honoring to God. A classic example that I thought of is there again in Deuteronomy, just one verse there that we already read, 
in Deuteronomy 12, verse 3, you shall overthrow their altars and break down their pillars, or their obelisks. There's, these are mentioned several times throughout the scriptures, the sacred pillars, the pillars of Ashtaroth or whatever. Uh, and those things are still around today. And they sit right on top of our houses of worship. <laughs> it's a steeple. It's what it is. And God actually specifically said in his scriptures to tear those things down. <laughs> I used to have a friend I rode around with, and every time we'd pass a church, he'd go, hey, hey, hey. You know, he just wanted to get a chainsaw on one of those things. But anyway. <laughs> but obviously, we can talk about some of those things, but uh, in a much more practical sense, much more practically. And music is pretty practical, but much more practical, and this is really what comes home to us. Is there a mixture in our worship? Is there a pollution of our sacrifice to God when we allow the world, which does not embrace the same principles that we stand for, does not even try to act like they hold to the same values, when we allow them to dictate our standards not only of music, but of dress, entertainment, business, finance, our standard of living, our marriage. God's law gives instructions and directions on all these things. We dare not learn from the world. It becomes polluted. It becomes a mixture. Our burden today, when we look, as we look at this, is that we would recognize we like to place idolatry way out there somewhere. But understanding that idolatry can not only be the worship of a false god, but can also be the false worship of God. And recognizing that throughout the scriptures, both are seen by God as disobedience. It brings the problem of idolatry uncomfortably close to home. And I will challenge all of us, because this has been a challenge to me, I'd like to challenge you. May we have the discernment and honesty to see where our worship has become mixed and unholy and learn the beauty of holiness. Because God says, I will not hold him guiltless, who taketh my name in vain. God bless you.